0: Welcome back to One Decision, the podcast where we take a deep dive into what are some of the most consequential decisions made today. How a single choice can affect lives around the world. Who gets to make these decisions and how does it feel for them? The North Atlantic Treaty Alliance was formed in 1949 in the aftermath of the Second World War. Twelve founding members signed a treaty in Washington which enshrined the right of its members to collective defence. Despite the fact that 73 years have passed and membership has now grown to 30 nations, that treaty has never been modified. The Supreme Allied Commander of Europe in NATO is one of the highest positions in the Alliance, the second highest military role within NATO. The first Supreme Allied Commander was Dwight Eisenhower, before he became the 34th President of the United States. Admiral James Stavridis assumed the position after a long career at the US Navy a retired four-star US Navy Admiral who served until 2013 and rose in his service to become commander of a strike carrier group in active combat during the Iraq and Afghan wars. He then went on to serve as commander of US European Command based in Germany and then as NATO Supreme Allied Commander in Europe in his final years of service between 2009 and 2013. During his time at NATO, he watched as troops were pulled out of positions in Europe in order to support Allied missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. In a letter published on Bloomberg, he revealed that he had a hard time persuading his colleagues and bosses in Washington that Russia still posed a threat to Europe, which at the time appeared to be free. It's an assessment he revisited earlier this year after Putin ordered his troops to invade Ukraine. My co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, former chief of British intelligence, joined me in conversation with Admiral Stavridis about how the Russian invasion of Ukraine has brought the role of NATO back into sharp focus. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Julia.
0: I have to ask you, first of all, about NATO, because we have seen the NATO Defence Alliance evolved perhaps most rapidly since its inception in 1949, when the North Atlantic Treaty was first signed. In the last 20 years, uh, the most rapid evolution, and that's perhaps largely because of the seismic global consequences we've seen of 9-11, and perhaps because of the advent of globalisation, and perhaps also because of the advancement of, of tech and all the evolving security threats That have come with that and it wasn't just nato but a lot of western defense uh forces a lot of national defense forces suddenly needed to adapt from dealing with the cold war conflict to fighting terrorists and insurgents in the middle east so my first question to you today What is NATO's biggest challenge now? I mean, obviously, the Russian threat is highest on the agenda, given that there is a live conflict raging on the borders of of Europe. But is Russia the biggest threat to NATO in both the short and the long term?
1: I think Russia undoubtedly is the biggest threat in the short term, certainly, in this tactical moment. And I think the alliance has responded uh, responsibly, sensibly, and in a measured way. Um, longer term, I think uh, I see uh, three significant challenges for NATO. Uh, One is, in fact, uh, Russia. But here I want to make a point. We see Russia and China drawing closer and closer together. So I think I'm going to basket those two. And by the way, as a kind of a a, a, a little trio, Iran is nudging into that set of relationships both with China and Iran. So let's park that as uh, great power competition with authoritarian states. Uh, Number two big challenge for NATO that I see is, is cyber and cyber security. I think that in cyber we have the greatest mismatch between the level of threat, which is very high, and the level of preparation, which is still inadequate in many, many ways. And and here, I think NATO uh, collectively uh, has some work to do to be prepared for challenges that come not only from the group I just mentioned, uh, but also from um, nations and entities to include Islamists, to include uh, cyber criminal gangs and criminal actors, Um, I think there's a a pretty rich uh, field of endeavor there uh, for NATO. And then uh, thirdly, I think that for NATO, um, there are the, uh, I'm going to want to basket these, although they're very different, but it's north and south. And what I mean by that is the Arctic, the high north, I think is going to be a zone of competition Uh, God forbid, it should be a a conflict zone. And then to the south, um, the continuing challenges in the Middle East broadly, North Africa, um, radical Islam, I think those will operate as well. So I'm kind of going to put it in three broad baskets. But I'll close on this, Julia. I, I get quite tired of people who say, oh, NATO, it's irrelevant. It's Cold War vestige. Um, I I think it's anything but that. It it has, uh, unfortunately, perhaps, but it has a great deal of, um, uh, we say in the business world, TAM, total addressable market, meaning there's a lot of need out there for security.
0: Jim, I have to ask, because you mentioned in an article for Bloomberg recently that when you were Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, You said and I quote, we were pulling troops out of Europe, both to support combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and also because we believed that Europe was whole and free. I had a hard time trying to persuade my colleagues and bosses back in Washington that Russia still posed a significant threat to US interests, and especially to NATO allies and close partners such as Georgia and Ukraine. Our footprint continued to shrink despite pleas from NATO partners like Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, the Baltic states, who were constantly warning me about the threat from Putin's Russia. What, take us back to that time that you were referring to and what your assessment of the threat from Russia was back then that led you uh, to make those warnings to your colleagues. And of course, hindsight is a marvellous thing. But could this have been prevented or averted, do you think?
1: Well, it certainly got my attention when Putin rolled into Georgia in 2008. So I became Supreme Allied Commander the following year and immediately began to hear quite a bit, not just from Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, but from other former Warsaw Pact nations about their concerns, notably the Poles. And let's face it, history um, has a way with us. And when Russian Soviet tanks roll west, it rattles old ghosts in Europe. And it it is going back to the 1939, the Finnish uh, Winter War. I think is rattling around in the minds of the Finns right now, which is why they are seeking NATO membership. The Poles can remember Warsaw, uh, the Czech Republic, Prague Spring '68. Budapest, 56, I could go on and on. You get the point. You know, the book of history is pretty clear about the concerns we ought to feel about Russia. And I think we engaged in some magical thinking Um, in the era of Gorbachev and the fall of the wall. We sort of decided that uh, this is a different Russia. Well, it turns out, unfortunately, it's not a very different Russia. And uh, in those years... Um, there were fewer of us who were making those kinds of points, and everyone was seized with the so-called forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Turns out the forever war may be across the border in Russia.
0: Uh, Richard, you were head of MI6 during the the fall of the Soviet Union, and, and Jim points out uh, that a lot of the thinking back then was this is a new Russia. Uh, Take us back to when you were leading British intelligence, and you were dealing with this collapse of this old-time enemy. Did you believe back then that this was a new Russia? Did you believe that this was a hopeful time, or were you a bit more suspicious? Well,
2: I think there was a brief window of hope um, when you know Yeltsin um, was in power, and then Yeltsin was eventually succeeded. Um, by Putin. And um, I mean, I went to Moscow with Tony Blair um, to meet Putin later, well, a little bit later on. And when we first met him, we felt that we could probably or maybe have a different relationship. Uh, and I think there was, you know, genuine um, gesture on our part to, to, to look at the possibility of a different relationship with Russia. And of course, for a brief period of time, they did help us a little bit on issues like Afghanistan. I certainly went to what had been the Soviet Ministry of Defence. I was probably the first chief of SIS to go in there, (laughs) historically. Uh, And, you know, I met the head of the GIU, unbelievably, and we sat down and we talked about the problems of dealing with um, Islamist terrorists uh, in Afghanistan. However you know, that honeymoon didn't last for very long. And um, we were brought back in the direction of, let's say, reality. And what I mean by reality is a sort of picture historically that Jim has just painted of Russia and its attitude towards its neighboring countries. And um, there were individual issues that cropped up pretty fast. Zakhaev, uh, to do with Chechnya, um, The extradition of Berezovsky and then just after I retired the murder of Litvinenko in London. I mean all of these things and quite frankly the relationship with the Russians went into the freezer pretty quickly and um, we discovered that we were dealing with, uh, maybe it's wrong to say the old enemy, but we were dealing with a nation which we knew well and whose characteristics we knew well and i mean i was certainly one of the first um when i retired in 2004 2005 i gave a lecture at rucee when i said you know the, the the war with terrorism you know is important politically because you know it has such immediate con- consequences for the for, for for everybody but we mustn't forget the serious long term threat that from russia and to an extent from china And I think you know that prediction has been proved largely right. And uh, you know we've had many, many warnings before we got to the current crisis, which is so severe with Ukraine, specifically with Georgia, specifically with Crimea in 2014. So we had plenty of warning, but in a way, our governments chose to shut their eyes and hope that things might be different. And of course, I think the classic example of this, to an extent, is the way that you know Merkel's Germany behaved towards Russia. Um, And, uh, you know, therein lies the origins of the seriousness of the problems that we now face.
0: I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And there were very, you, you say we had lots of warnings and there were certainly sort of instances that demonstrated that the new Russia was not a country that was playing by the rules of the international order. And, you know, we had Litvinenko. We had, you know, Skripal as well as uh, you know Berezovsky and the hunting down of lots of Russians on on foreign soil. We have had plenty of opportunities to to, to wise up to the threat of Russia, but what what could we have done to to get Russia to, to play ball, to play by the rules? Is it something that is down to external external countries or is or is Russia's kleptocratic regime that is dragging it into a war it did not have to be in that is uh, triggering international isolation and and you know, looming economic crises for its citizens is this something that any of us can do anything about or is it something that is the solution something to be found from within Russia
1: I would start by saying um, in Russia, long, long tradition of unitary domination by solitary male figures. I've just summarized 2,000 years of Russian history. You roll the cosmic dice and sometimes it works out. Sometimes you get Peter the Great and and he pulls Russia into the Enlightenment and, and leans to the West. But another time you get Ivan the Terrible. Uh, Then you get a Joseph Stalin and he kills 30 million of his countrymen. But then the dice land on on Gorbachev and Yeltsin. And there is, I think Sir Richard categorizes it perfectly. There was a moment of legitimate hope. Those dice have landed on Vladimir Putin. He will be the czar of the Russians until he dies. And we've got to deal with that. And so the answer to the question is there's something we can do um, what we have to do is recognize the, the iron grip Putin has on the levers of power and try and reverse engineer that where we can. And there are economic tools to do that, there are tools of espionage to do that, there are uh, diplomatic tools that can be helpful, um, military, strong military deterrence. We can build that package. But at the end of the day, if you want to steer the ship of Russia, you've got to do it with the hands of Vladimir Putin on the wheel. I don't see that changing in, in, in the course of the next five years anyway. His health may be the, the most uh, determinative path to the change in the course of the Russian ship.
0: I have to ask because NATO has uh, really had its public image almost sort of galvanised uh, in the face of this Russian crisis. We've all been given a reason to to look at NATO with fresh eyes and no one more so than the Baltic states who've always been very strong uh, members of the alliance, but increasingly their nearby neighbours, uh, Sweden and Finland. And there's a lot of talk about their moves to try and uh, and join the alliance. Jim, what do you make of these requests from Sweden and Finland to to join NATO. They they previously didn't feel the need to be part of NATO and that obviously changed uh, given what Russia has done with Ukraine, but do you believe their concerns are legitimate or do you think this is part of pan-European posturing intended to show that Russia's actions are anathema to the international community. I mean, no one could accuse the Finns or the Swedes of not having the capabilities to defend themselves. So what do you make of of these requests to join NATO that has given Russia another uh, reason to be angry
1: and on the defense? I think what the question you're asking is, has to do with risk and risk assessment. And if you're Sweden and Finland, Up to this point, your risk calculation has been, you know, it's better not to be aggressive. It's better to try and have a neutral relationship. It's better to have strong economic ties with Russia, uh, to continue a course of neutrality that's been in place for, for many, many years in both countries. What has changed? And I think the the brutality, the lethality, the episodes of human rights grossly violated, the war crimes in Buxia, I think that has had a very clarifying effect on the minds of Swedes and Finns. And uh, when I was NATO commander, I would actively encourage uh, both nations to operate closely with us. They deployed troops. Uh, under my command to Afghanistan, to the Balkans. Sweden participated in the war over Libya with their superb Gripen fighters. Um, can they defend themselves? Yeah, reasonably well. Again, go back to the history of the Winter War in 1939. The Finns fought the Soviets largely to a standstill. Uh, but at the end of the day, they, they, the Finns and the Swedes, watched what has unfolded uh, in Ukraine and said, nope our risk calculation is different now. We now see greater risk from Russia militarily than we have in the past, and therefore, we want that NATO membership card. And I'll close on this by saying I would often say to friends in Helsinki and Stockholm, look, you guys are so good, so capable, so professional. If you want to join NATO tell us on Wednesday, we'll have you in by Friday. It's not gonna be quite that quick. And you know, President Erdogan is gonna be a bit annoying here, but at the end of the day, this is gonna happen very quickly. By the fall, my view, they will both be members of NATO.
0: Right. I mean, on Erdogan, I have to ask, because there are now, I, I believe 30 members of NATO, 30 different okay. countries. And given that you, you know, Le- leading this this organisation and trying to deal with all of these conflicting priorities and all of these conflicting uh, uh, needs and 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 countries that have different ideas and different priorities, is there not a danger that NATO could suffer from UN sickness when it tries to absorb too many people, too many points of view, too many priorities? Is it wise to con- continue expanding?
1: I think it is wise to do what the NATO treaty and charter says, and I would encourage uh, listeners to actually Google NATO treaty and read it. I think there are 32 sentences in it. Um, and, and essentially what it says about NATO membership, I think is crystal clear and makes sense. It is that any nation can apply, which is in a position to further the democratic ideals of the alliance, and, is, and this is key, is in the European North American geographic zone. So I don't see a NATO that expands into a new democratic United Nations and let's bring in Japan and Australia as attractive as they would be as security partners. No, I don't see that. But uh, within the realm of the current situation, Uh, I think Sweden and Finland make a lot of sense, and and I do want to draw a line under one thing. Occasionally I hear from American academics, normally professors, who say things like, oh, the root of the problem here is NATO expansion. If NATO had only had the vision and the foresight not to uh, expand at the end of the Cold War, we wouldn't have these terrible problems with Russia. I think that is the ultimate in magical thinking. Um, And and again, open the book of history. I can show you so many times when Russians have rolled to the West in the modern era. And I defy you to find a page in that book of post-World War II history where a NATO tank has rolled into a Warsaw Pact country. I can show you again and again where the Russians have done it. And more recently in 2008, 2014 and 2022.
0: You say that NATO can't expand beyond its territory. It is the North Atlantic Treaty that was signed. But we we had NATO troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, and those campaigns were incredibly, they, they have left a toxic legacy for a lot of people, for a lot of domestic populations. Is NATO, should NATO basically be an insurance policy for Mm. countries, the Article 5 aspect of NATO, and should it stick to that? And given what you say about its geographic limitations, should NATO exist really as an insurance policy against the only real hostile power, which is Russia?
1: I think that the answer is somewhere in between Uh, NATO being a strictly fort Europe um, that hunkers down, builds its military, and throws rocks across a transom at Russia. I don't think that's the right vision. On the other hand, I don't see NATO as the solution to the world's uh, security needs and desires. I think the answer is kind of in the middle, which is to say, if you can find a nexus to real threat to the alliance, that comes from somewhere outside of Fortress Europe and Fortress North America, then I think that is NATO's business. And Iraq and Afghanistan were uh, failures of uh, military and failures of diplomatic efforts, failures economically. There's a lot of blame to go around in how things turned out, especially in Afghanistan, by the way. I think Iraq, let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. Um, but I would say that um, NATO going to Afghanistan, following an attack launched from Afghanistan against a NATO member, I think in, in that moment uh, made sense as an out of area operation. But Julie, I agree with, I think your fundamental point, which is that the bias of the organization ought to be your premise, uh, building strong defenses operating within its borders, those out-of-area operations, I think, uh, ought to be the exception to the rule.
2: No, I just agree with Jim. I mean, I think that the, if you look at something like the terrorist threat, you know, specifically the threat from Islamic fundamentalism, um, you know, that was a European, a global threat in a way, and we weren't going to be able to do anything about it unless we moved outside the European continent, because its basis, its sort of R&R areas, the areas where they were training and recruiting, you know, were in Afghanistan, were in Iraq, uh, were in other parts of the Middle East. Therefore there was a logic about NATO intervention, which I think was entirely legitimate. But I mean in terms of, you know, heavy deployment of military capability, then, you know, you're looking largely at the moment as the European theatre. I mean, as we've seen. I, I think the big question for nato ahead of time would be you know how we think and uh, deploy when the chinese threat in future maybe becomes more potent and then you know you do then get into a diff- different sort of geopolitical pose but i i think that that i think that issue really is some distance down the road we haven't got there well we we we're, we're, we're talking about it we're thinking about it but in terms of physical deployment um, you know, we're largely depending on the United States in terms of how to, as it were, confront the uh, Chinese threat in in the Pacific and in the South China Sea.
1: Can I add a quick compliment, which is um, you are absolutely magnificent new aircraft carrier Queen Elizabeth yeah. uh, just deployed into the South China yeah. Sea and was part of Freedom of Navigation Patrols. Um, and by the way, uh, the French have done so, the Germans have done so, not under NATO umbrella, but as allies. And I think that's edging toward the in complete agreement with Sir Richard, um, the idea that collectively we can be very, very capable in, uh, in balancing, shall we say, China.
0: I want to jump back to something that Jim mentioned earlier, um, thinking about the future of of NATO and the future of of what modern defense necessitates and that there is a huge chasm between the threat posed by the cyberspace and our collective defense preparations for it. And Richard, you have a particular interest in cybersecurity. Um, I would love to hear from both of you on how you feel that threat is going to lead both governments and NATO to respond and, and what, what really needs to be done. Are we going to start to see a NATO pledge for spending on cyber defenses as well as, as, as generic defense spending pledges?
2: Well, inevitably, you know, the cyber domain becomes more important militarily, um, if that's the right way to express it over time. And the UK and the US do have a tradition of working together successfully in this area. Um, And maybe one should mention in this context as an extension of that Five Eyes, um, which of course includes Canada, um, Australia, and New Zealand. And I mean, that is an organisation which is, I think, specifically Well adjusted in terms of what its capability can be for dealing with this issue. Um, I mean, Jim will know more about this than me, but I mean, that hasn't been fully transposed into the NATO context. Uh, because of the number of uh, countries that are members and issues of restrictive security and cooperation. So,
0: so, are you saying that NATO should perhaps stay more on like conventional military? No, I'm, not, I'm
2: just saying that NATO, sh- ha- that there is definite grounds to develop in this area. And I think, you know, one of the interesting aspects that I was discussing the other day with some ex GCHQ people was the impact that the war in Ukraine is having on cyber relationships already not much of this is in the public domain it's not particularly secret but you know the stuff going on in ukraine which is going to as it were change nato's perception of these issues and of course the stuff being captured by the ukrainians um in in in...
0: what kind of stuff well i'm not
2: going to go into detail you can ask jim about that but there's (laughs) the stuff that's been captured by the ukrainians already which the west Knew about, but probably hasn't seen the physical plant,
0: right? But I mean, you obliquely mention, you know, stuff going on in Ukraine, but we haven't really seen cyber attacks in this conflict.
2: on
0: on, on a huge scale, have we? I,
2: I well, I just think that that's probably not been in the public domain very much. I disagree with you. Um, I I mean, I could give you. uh, I mean, let's put it like this: I have been the object of the last three weeks of a russian disruption operation um i'm not going to go into detail
0: um
2: and and some of my and we're retired people but clearly we're commentating on ukraine quite a lot in the public domain and the russians don't like this so (laughs) they've used their capabilities which are pretty sophisticated to make some awkwardnesses for us um don't worry about it because it's not going to affect you but i mean I, i and i wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if Jim has had a similar experience, but I'm not going to ask him directly. (laughs)
1: Um, I I would say it is a fascinating question um, why there has not been some kind of massive cyber attack um, that would be impossible to hide. I I agree completely with Sir Richard. There is a great deal of cyber activity. It is the kind of personal attacks he talks about. It is uh, a, a kind of an ongoing low-level set of attacks against command and control on the part of the Ukrainians. Um, But there's been no big, for example, shutting down the Ukrainian electric grid, which Russia, my view, is capable of doing so. Three years ago, they knocked out half of it, almost in a playful way to sort of demonstrate the capability. Russia uh, has very sophisticated cyber tools both for big public kinds of things, for micro kinds of uh, precision guided strikes and things kind of in the middle, going after consumer chains, ransomware, often masquerades uh, activity by the FSB. So why have we not seen more of the high-end stuff, the public stuff? And I think Putin is holding those back because he wants something to play when the sanctions really start to bite in Russia. He is going to want, at that point, to use those kind of tools against the West to discomfit our populations in the way that his populations are being discomfited. So I think there's another shoe to drop on this. In addition to what is happening, I assure you, beneath the surface of the sea here, so to speak.
0: Jim, I have to ask you, because as much as you are a military veteran, you're also a very dedicated student of history, and particularly military history, and you've written several books on history and geopolitics, and your latest book, which is out now, out soon, um, it's particularly appropriate for our podcast. It's called To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. And in your book, you profile nine naval heroes across history who've each made pivotal strategic decisions in combat that have had profound consequences. The first one was just a few years after American independence, and then the ninth is a U.S. naval captain on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt dealing with a deadly outbreak of COVID in 2020. And in your book, you scrutinize what these men and women uh, did to prepare for these decisions if they had the prior opportunity and what lessons we can all draw from these examples, whether we are involved in combat or not. So I have to ask you, what was, do you believe, the most significant decision that you have had to make
1: in your long career? Uh, I think that... For me, I'll, I'll give you two, um, and they're sort of different. Different. One is a big one, and one is a small one. A, 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 a seemingly small one, but but very difficult one, was a hostage rescue operation in Colombia, and uh, we had three American defense contractors who are being held by the FARC, the uh, rebels who are fighting the government, and. Our intelligence network was constantly honing in on their location, so Richard knows this feeling very well, and you keep getting closer and closer, and at one point I was approached by my intelligence and special operations folks, and they said, Admiral, we think we've got them, and here's what the operation would look like. and I was so deeply concerned about the lives of these hostages, I, I, I failed to pull the trigger fast enough and, and they slipped away. And in retrospect, that kind of life or death tactical decision, I think is, is among the very hardest any commander has to make. Um, and certainly a hostage rescue which will fail seven out of 10 times and result in the death of a hostage is a very difficult decision. So Columbia, jungle, hostages. Uh, And in retrospect, uh, we eventually did get them out. So perhaps in some way my hesitancy uh, turned into a better outcome for them. On the other hand, it's a decision, if I had to go back and do again, I would make that decision with more alacrity. And I think we could have gotten them with our intel and our special operations. Tactical decision. The the biggest strategic decision I had to make um, was in Afghanistan. Um, I had 150,000 troops in in combat, um, 100,000 American, 50,000 from all the other nations. Of course, a brave and heroic and and very significant contribution coming from the United Kingdom. And, And the big tactical, the big strategic decision I had to make there. And I think it was the right one. Um, I made in concert with the then in-country commander, uh, General Stanley McChrystal, uh, a wonderful friend of mine. It was to shift the way in which we were approaching combat away from uh, hunter-killer kinds of operations against the Taliban and shift it to a a broader whole of government, classic counterinsurgency kind of uh, mission. And, and that those decisions we made in 2009, 2010, and I think the course of the war improved significantly in the sense that um, by the time I left and, and in the years afterward, we had withdrawn of the 150,000 troops, we were down to 15,000 total allied troops. So we, we took out 90% of our troops. The Afghan security forces appeared to have reasonable control over the country. We were thinking about, okay, what's the next end game? Negotiations with the Taliban. And then I think the United States principally became impatient and unwound what had been very, very good work. Um, on that one, I stand by my decisions, 2009, 2010, to reorient the campaign to a whole of government approach, which I think was in fact successful until we pulled the pins out from it at the end game and the whole house collapsed. So there's two: one, one kind of tactical, one uh, strategic, one I think I'd do differently and the other one I would stand by.
0: When discussing some of the shortfalls of these military heroes that you profile in the book, you mention a few negative character traits, hot-headedness, insecurity stemming from the emasculation, for example, of age or physical appearance. Vladimir Putin is a very small man. Uh, bravado, not to be uh, too stereotypical, but these are often traits that are stereotyped as being masculine. So would the military be better served if it were run by leadership <laughs> than a female?
1: Well, I'll, I'll point out for really you that <laughs> of, the nine, uh, of the nine figures in the book, uh, one is, in fact, a woman, a four-star African-American, by the way, named Michelle Howard, who makes a very, very good decision in a hostage rescue situation, kind of the Captain mirror. Captain
0: Phillips, yeah. Correct.
1: She was the mm-hmm. commander for the Captain Phillips rescue operation. And uh, I have a lot of regard for Michelle, so perhaps that makes your point, that uh, better better one good female admiral than uh, eight other also-rans. Um, but no, I, in my experience, um, masculinity, femininity, uh, they're not hugely relevant in the context of what I've seen in military operations. And I commanded uh, a, the first American destroyer to embark women in the crew, and I commanded it for a year with a male-only crew And then I was chosen to to embark uh, a significant tranche of women into the crew. So I commanded the same ship, all male, mixed gender, better ship, mixed gender. And you can drop a plumb line from those days, that was in the 1990s, uh, to the present day when we see women at every level in the military, to include Michelle Howard. We've just selected here in the U.S. the first woman admiral to head our Coast Guard, which is bigger than almost any Navy in the world, um, I I don't see significant differences in male, female, and how they approach the role as senior military. Jim, your book, 2034,
0: explores a way in which the next world war could start at how major power showdowns could spiral out of control. Take us through what your worst case scenario explored in this work of fiction, and is it a warning or is it a prediction?
1: It it is most definitively not a prediction. It is a cautionary tale. It is a warning. And um, I wrote the book having read a lot of Cold War literature. We mentioned earlier a book called The Third World War by Sir John Hackett, but think the movie, Dr. Strangelove, On the Beach by the Australian Neville Shute, the Bedford incident about a a, a war that is narrowly averted between the US and the Soviet Union in the cold waters of the North Atlantic. Um, as I read all that Cold War literature, Julia, I began to think, you know, we are edging toward if not in a Cold War with China, where is the comparative body of literature? Where are the cautionary tales about what such a war would look like? So that's the genesis of 2034, a novel of the next world war. And, and it, it begins, and here's where I would particularly point the cautionary part, with China having outspent, outstretched the United States in its technology China in possession of powerful cyber weapons, powerful space capabilities that uh, render many of our surveillance systems uh, inoperative and a very capable maritime power. Also in 2034, the United States noticeably has no allies. We have not tended the garden of alliances and they've sort of fallen away from us, whereas China as a very close relationship with Russia and with Iran. And then thirdly in the book, in terms of cautionary, the political dysfunction in the United States that we see so manifest today has, has led to a real breakdown in consensus domestically. All of those come together in this very cautionary moment. And I think the idea of the book is we still have time. We still have time to increase our technology, to tend the garden of our alliances, to fix our our disordered political house. All of these are immense challenges, but that's the genesis of the book. And I hope it's a good read as well. It's a novel, it's fiction. It's my 10th book, but my first novel. Um, I'm happy with it as a format. I hope it stays
0: as a warning and not as a prophecy. (laughs) That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We drop new shows every Thursday. From me and the team, thanks for being with us this hour. See you next time.